chance once again to open your word together to think about all that you are teaching us and who you are in your very nature and character and how you have cared for us so greatly. We know we need you. We know that without your divine illumination of our hearts and minds, we wouldn't understand anything. That you would attend to us tonight and care for our souls from the truth of your word that we might live according to it. To the glory of your great name we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your Bibles tonight with me and turn in them to John's Gospel, chapter 16. John, chapter 16. We are returning tonight to where we left off last time concerning the subject of what to expect from the Holy Spirit. What to expect from the Holy Spirit. This is another section in a rather larger section of the gospel that began really for us back in chapter 13. It was back in chapter 13 that Jesus had changed his ministry emphasis from being with the general populace of Israel to now simply being with just his disciples. And so we've been looking at this entire vignette beginning from chapter 13 till now over the last 17 times we've been here in the gospel of john i don't know if you've been counting or not Uh, sometimes we tell you exactly what number this is in the series of the final instructions for saved people this is the 17th apparently or the 18th and jesus has been giving his final words to those who have believed upon him his disciples these are then as I have entitled them, the final instructions for a saved people. Up until that point, he was giving instruction to the populace at large, telling them to believe upon him. Now he's simply with his disciples. The verses that we're going to look at tonight are what I would consider a crucial portion of the scriptures for us. Not that any other part of the scriptures is anything less important for us, but these in this portion of scripture teach us that that were we without this truth that we find in the portion of scripture I want us to focus our attention on tonight, if we were without that, we would have no way of understanding any of the scriptures or even have the scriptures themselves for us to even understand. Now, we spend our lifetimes, as I was preparing this, I was thinking about this, we spend our lifetimes as Christians in a perpetual state of study. You may not think you're in a perpetual state of study as a Christian, but you are. As Christians, that is our life, and it is the study of one book. We listen to preaching here in this church. We go to Sunday school classes where teaching happens. We are taught when we tune in our radios as Christians to preaching and teaching from other people across the globe, and we even attend conferences here and at other locations whereby we are teaching. And all of those moments have one thing in common. Every single one of them has one thing in common. In all of them, we as Christians are studying one book. It's a book that contains 66 smaller books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And the divine subject of all of them is singularly focused. The subject is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and how we can be reconciled as sinners to God. The Old Testament is filled with example after example after example after example of how man, Israel, how the nation, how people in general continually failed to be reconciled to God. Why? Because they refused to do it over and over and over again. They refused to follow God's way. They continually tried through their own efforts and their own kings to reach or to to be the way God had required them to be. They killed the prophets who were sent to correct their failing ways. And then you come to the New Testament and the visible answer to all their failures comes on the scene and he fulfills all previous prophecy. He shows his power over the environmental powers of wind and rain and waves. He shows his perfect power over every kind of physical disease that mankind could have by healing the sick and the blind and the lame. And he proves without a shadow of a doubt that he is who the prophet spoke of. He is the Messiah who is to come. And the religious leaders still rejected him even ultimately killing him. But some of the chosen believed in him. They followed him. He taught them. And there came the time when he would leave them and return to the heavenly glory from which he came. And those who were with him and who had believed upon him are now emotionally crushed at the news. Why? Because they didn't fully understand it yet. They were confused in many ways because for them, for the disciples who were with Jesus, the Messiah was going to rescue them from the oppression that was over them on the earth. Reminds us somewhat of the Jehovah's Witnesses who want to remain here and say they're one of the 144,000 that are going to inherit the earth. Anytime they come and say that to me, wherever I'm at, if they knock on my door, I say, you can have it. You can have it. And then I go to Second Peter and just read to them what God is going to do with it. And then I ask them if they're a Jew, because that's who the 144,000 are. But these men are, are, are somewhat like that in some sense. They don't understand what is going on with Jesus and what he is saying to them. Much of what they heard from Jesus confused them. Why? Because it, it didn't match what they were taught. It didn't match what their heritage had said. It didn't match what was to come in their minds. Just by way of example, think about this. Remember what Jesus had said to them way back in John 2? Jesus had said in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Said that to the crowds at large. And the Jews responded to that and said this, in 46, it took 46 years to build this temple. Of course, they're referring to Herod's temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But he's not talking about his physical Building. He's not talking about the temple that's there. He was meaning the temple of his body. He was speaking about the resurrection. 
He's talking about his death. He's talking about the resurrection that would follow. And the people didn't get it. In fact, just listen to the very next verse in that text. So when he was raised from the dead, now much later, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples, it says what? His disciples remembered that he said this and they what? Believed the scriptures. They believed the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. They believed the Old Testament and the word which Jesus had spoken. What was what he was saying? He was talking about his resurrection. That means that when he said it to them earlier, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it until after he was gone. It wasn't plain. It wasn't the plan in their minds wasn't what they expected. And they only got it after. After the resurrection happened, then they got it. Again, in John's gospel, a couple of chapters later, in chapter 12, Jesus enters Jerusalem. In verse 12, the large crowd is saying to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, they're praising him as the king of Israel. Jesus finds a donkey, rides in it. Why? To fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Once again, Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. And in the next 48 hours, he is killed by those very same people. They didn't get it, even though it was clear from the prophet. Still another place in chapter 20. Just turn over there for a second. Chapter John chapter 20, even after Jesus dies, Peter in verse 6 comes to the tomb and he goes in and he sees that the Lord is not there. And in verse 8, It says this, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, who's that? That's John, if you look at the previous verses before verse 6. John was a little better runner than Peter. He beat Peter to the tomb. John, who was the first to come to the tomb, entered. He saw and believed. For as yet, it says in verse 9. For as yet what? For as yet, to that very point in time, what point? What point in time? The point when John saw that the body was not there. As yet to the point that John saw that the grave was empty, that Jesus wasn't there anymore. The point in time when the resurrection had happened. Up to that point, they didn't understand the scripture. That he must rise again from the dead, even though he had said it. You see, I'm trying to make the point that this resurrection of Jesus in this way just wasn't in their thinking. Just wasn't there in their minds yet. Even though they had read about the resurrection in the Old Testament, even though Jesus had spoken about it to them clearly, they still just didn't get it. Now, 
I want us for a moment to just turn back to Luke chapter 18 for a second because I think it's very clear here in Luke chapter 18. I think this is a really good example of this reality. In verse 31, it says, And he took the twelve aside and said to them, takes the twelve aside and he says to them, here's what he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all these things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. What is that? For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So here's the scene. Jesus is telling them clearly what is going to happen. And he's speaking about what the prophets have already spoken of. This is what's going to take place. It was spoken about through the prophets. So here's the plan, Jesus says. We're going to go to Jerusalem and all these things that have been written of me through the prophets will be accomplished. You say, what is that? I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock me. They're going to mistreat me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to kill me. And after that, I will rise again. Sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? Pretty clear. They were confused, but it's pretty clear. But notice verse 34. And they understood None of these things. And this saying was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. They were confused. Their whole life is in turmoil. They're confused about it. They don't know what's going on. It's not matching what they had been taught. They thought they understood what the prophets were saying, but they're figuring out, at least Jesus is telling them, you don't, you, you've heard the prophets, but they don't understand it all. The question is, did they ever get it? Yes. In fact, in Luke 24, just like saw in John's gospel, Luke 24, first day of the week, it's early dawn. They come to the tomb bringing spices. This is the women. They found the stone rolled away. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened while they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. As the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, he said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. Even the angel is saying to them, don't you remember what he said about this very moment? Even to the women. And of course, right after that they go and they tell the other disciples. And the words, verse 11, appear to be nonsense. They wouldn't believe them. And Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. And we saw the linen wrappings only. He went away to his home, marveling. That that which should happen. He's still perplexed. Now the point is this. Go back to John chapter 16. Last time we left off at verse 11. And chapter 16 says. I have many more things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. Jesus had just told them, I'm going 
away. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper is not going to come to you. But if I do, I'm going to send him to you, verse 7. And he's going to come and convict the world concerning righteousness and sin and judgment. Then in verse 12, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. Why? Why couldn't he say more? They couldn't bear it, but what's he saying? He couldn't say any more about what was coming because they didn't even understand what he had already said to this point. It reminds me of Paul, the apostle, when he spoke to the Corinthian believers. And he said, I wanted to give you meat, but you couldn't even take it. You need just milk. You should be ready for meat, but you're not. I need to just give you milk. For the disciples, it wasn't until after the resurrection that it began to dawn on them. And it dawned first on John when he showed up in the tomb and the Lord wasn't there. Okay, now, now I remember that he said he's going to die and rise again. And then it took a long time for the rest of them. And it truly wasn't until they received the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that they fully understood. So this passage is very instructive for us. But I think it's instructive in a way that we may sometimes not think it is. Because essentially what this passage is talking about in the overall reality is the resurrection. And I think when we read it initially, we don't necessarily think that. And hopefully it will come out as we go through this. Because it's instructive for us, not so much about the doctrine of illumination as we might think this really speaks about. In other words, the doctrine on which how we understand and have this understanding of scripture, and more importantly, an understanding of the truth that we might embrace the scriptures. But rather, this is essentially instructive to us concerning the doctrine of inspiration inspiration more specifically how we came to have the New Testament scriptures that came to us through these men we notice that Jesus says to these disciples in verse 12 I have many more things to say to you but you cannot bear them now or you cannot bear now these things In other words, Jesus had taught them many significant doctrines, many significant truths already. They were nevertheless, there were nevertheless more things that Jesus needed to teach them. They were needing to be taught. And more importantly, there was more truth that needed to be understood and embraced by them. So as we look at this, section of scripture tonight I want us to be careful and not begin to think as we read this that this passage is a passage concerning the promise of inspiration to every Christian who has ever lived that is a trueness of scripture that that we are illumined by the truth but inspiration is not something for us We are not to learn from this passage that God's 
revelation is not complete or that we can or do receive new scriptural truth personally. None of us have ever received new truth that was not already given to us in the scriptures. If we fall into that kind of thinking, we have fallen into a deep and destructive heresy. It's a heresy that has caused many to stumble, and Jesus' words are explicitly given to protect these men even from that danger. Remember verse 1 of chapter 16? These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. I told you that they were going to take you out, that the world hates me, they're going to hate you, they're going to take you out, you're going to be persecuted, there's going to be all these things happening to you. I told you these things so that you'll be kept from stumbling, so that you won't be scandalized by these things. And for us Christians, Hebrews chapter 1, I think, really seals the door And the reality that we have a closed canon of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In other words, that is simply to say that the Scriptures are complete. And we are not to add to them, we are not to take away from them that which God the Spirit has completely given to us concerning Jesus Christ. So, here in John chapter 16, this is not Jesus teaching or even suggesting that the Spirit is imparting new truth to all or to even some people today. He is not teaching that. But rather, it is teaching that the Holy Spirit would lead the disciples into a definitive body of new revelation that thereafter, we, the church, would have as our authoritative body of doctrinal truth. That's the reality. here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, In Christ we have been granted everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And so I say all that so that we can keep the distinction clear, lest we get confused and place ourselves here in a personal way. Right here we are learning how the disciples were inspired to give the written word of God to us So that what you have right there on your very laps are the very words of God. So this is not about illumination by the Spirit. So that we, since the resurrection until the day of Christ's return, so that we can understand and embrace the truth, that's that's illumination. Certainly that is the work of the Spirit in our lives and we must and cannot truly understand and embrace the truth without the Spirit's illumination. But, This is primarily about the Spirit's inspiration. And the inspiration of those through whom we have the scriptures of the New Testament. Jesus says to them, I have more to say. 
There's more for you to know, men. But you cannot hold all that up right now. That's what the word bear means. To hold up, to carry it. You, you can't carry that load right now. Jesus says you, you need the Spirit in you. And by the way, right now, you are thinking way too emotionally about this. You're thinking way too worldly about this. You can't bear it now, but, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is pointing them to a day when the Holy Spirit would speak through these disciples, through the apostles, in a similar way that the Spirit was upon the prophets of the Old Testament that spoke for God, so that these men would speak as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and it would be recorded so that we would have the New Testament. So the question that I'm asking us to think about tonight is, what does this tell us then about the New Testament? What does just these few verses here in verses 13 through 15 tell us about the New Testament? Well, I want to give us three things that I believe it tells us about the New Testament tonight from from this passage. Number one is this. The New Testament is historical. The New Testament is historical. Or the New Testament is historical and historically accurate. Is probably even a better way to say it. And by historical, I mean truth concerning Jesus Christ. The New Testament is historical. It is truth concerning Jesus Christ. And it is historically accurate truth concerning Jesus Christ. Notice what... It says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. This is seen even more clearly in chapter 14, verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will teach you all things and... Bring to remembrance all that I said to you. In other words, from a human perspective, it's easy for us to make the claim that man is fallible. What I mean by fallible is that man makes errors. When man speaks, when man remembers, when man thinks, when man tries to record, he makes errors. That is simply to say that man is not perfect. There is no way that man could produce a document that is without error, especially historical error, because man could never remember all that he would need to be need to remember in order to give a clear and fully truthful accounting of the historical accounting of whatever he's writing about. And here it's about Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ was and who Jesus Christ is. While that is true from the human side, that is not true from God's side. Why? Because God, the Spirit, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, God the Spirit carried them along. And notice in chapter 16, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Why could he do that? 
because he is the spirit of truth. In other words, the spirit led them in the absolute truth of Christ because that is the very nature of the spirit. He is the spirit of truth. Well, think about the implications of that as you sit there tonight with that book in your lap. What you have in your lap, what we have in the scriptures is not a body of truth that you can take and sit by another body of truth. It is the body of the truth. That's a very important distinction. It is the truth and its focus is on Jesus Christ and all the events connected to and with Jesus Christ who is the truth. John 14, 6. It is the truth. It is not simply a truth. So everything concerning his birth, everything concerning his life, everything concerning his death, everything concerning his resurrection, everything concerning his glorification, everything concerning his place in the heavenly places, everything concerning his character, what he said, what he did, all of it is the substance of the Gospels, is the substance of the Acts of the Apostles. It is historical revelation concerning Jesus Christ who is the truth. So Jesus says when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will lead you, not you collectively of all the world, of all the Christians who have ever been led. This is not about uh, illumination. This is inspiration. He will lead you, you men. He will lead you into all The truth. In other words, he will remind you of me. He will remind you of me. Infallibly remind you of me. Why? Because that is the Spirit's job. That is the Spirit's job. And his job is to lead them in the truth who is Jesus Christ. And his glory is to reveal to them everything about Jesus Christ. He speaks of and highlights only one thing, Jesus Christ. I was thinking of this as I was looking over my notes this afternoon and thinking of that silly commercial on TV where the guy messes up the one thing he had to do. And the guy says, you had one job and you messed it up. The Holy Spirit has one job, and he does it perfectly. It's to highlight Christ. That's what he does. Why do we have this very gospel that we are studying, the gospel of John? Why do we have it? John tells us. So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why? Because believing brings life. So John says, I I wrote this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so Jesus sent the Spirit because the Spirit is all about Jesus Christ. 
So why are we hearing about how the Holy Spirit was sent to lead these men to remember all that Jesus taught them? Why is that here? Why, is, why did John insert that here in the gospel as he's carried along by the Spirit so that we might believe through his word that Jesus is the Christ and so that we might have life in him? That's why it's here. So here's the implication. Any understanding of the faith, any understanding of the faith that does not come from the historical reality of Jesus Christ is heresy. Let me say that again. Any understanding of the faith that does not come from the historical reality of Jesus Christ is heresy and it will not save. Anybody who says, hey, God said to me, and it is not matching with what the scriptures say, is heresy. This is historical fact. So this teaches us that the scriptures, the New Testament, is historical and historically accurate. Because it's the Spirit who leads. There's a second thing that it tells us about the New Testament. It tells us that the New Testament is doctrinal. Doctrinal. It's historical. And secondly, it's doctrinal. Notice what verse 13 says. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into all the truth. He will disclose to you verse the end of verse 13. Verse end of verse 14 and shall disclose it to you. End of verse 15 and will disclose it to you. The spirit guides, the spirit speaks, the spirit discloses the truth. Do we have that reality in the New Testament? Of course we do. It's in every book. It isn't simple historical stories that we read about. It is fact. It is teaching. It is the facts of what God has done. But also, and more importantly, it isn't simply the facts of what God has done, like a history book on the thing, and we can read about the facts of what God has done. But those facts have meaning. Those facts have implicational meaning for us. In other words, when the Bible says that God came to the earth as Jesus, that's historical fact. But that isn't simply historical fact, is it? Jesus came to earth as man. Yes, that's historical fact, but it's also doctrinal. You say, what do you mean? I mean, it is teaching and it means that in Jesus we know God. That's doctrine. You can look at it, think about it like this. It's an historical fact that Jesus died. That's an historical fact. But there's a greater meaning to that historical fact. You say, why do you say that? Because it's historically true that many people have died, is it not? There's been lots of people who have died throughout the history of the world, and their death meant nothing. 
There's nothing special about those people's deaths. But with Jesus, there is a greater meaning. Because it teaches us that in his death is the reality of life for all who would believe in him. So it isn't simply historical fact, it's doctrinal truth. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthian believers? Let's go there for a moment, chapter 15. This is fascinating how this just kind of plays itself out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This whole idea of historical fact with doctrinal meaning. Notice what Paul says. Now I make known to you, verse 1, Brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now what was the what what did you say? Well I delivered to you as of first importance what I received that Christ died. Well there's historical fact but it has a doctrinal intention for our sins he says. According to what? The scriptures. The scriptures are historical fact with doctrinal intention. And verse 4 that he was buried historical fact. And that he was raised on the third day. Historical fact, according to the scriptures. The scriptures are historical. The scriptures are doctrinal. And then he says, and he appeared to all these people. Now, verse 12, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, historical fact, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, so now you're denying history. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, historical fact, not even Christ has been raised, historical fact, and if Christ hasn't been raised, then here's the doctrinal reality. Our preaching's in vain, and your faith is in vain. If it wasn't historical fact and it didn't have doctrinal meaning, Paul would never say those words. In fact... It even goes worse than that because if Christ, historical fact, hasn't been raised from the dead, then you're calling God a liar because God throughout the entire Old Testament said he would come and he would die and he would rise again. You see, that's what the New Testament shows us. So we know the love of God. We know the justice of God. We know the compassion of God. And we see the mercy of God In the resurrection. In the resurrection. Go back to John chapter 16. Jesus says this is what he's going to guide you in. He's going to guide you in in this doctrinal understanding. You're going to get it. All of this is doctrinal. And in John 16, Jesus is saying that in disclosing the truth of me, the Spirit is glorifying me. He's guiding you into all the truth, and he's glorifying me, verse 14 says, when he does that, because he's taking from mine, and he's disclosing it to you. And when he takes from mine, he's taking from the Father, because all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine 
and will disclose it to you. And so you see right there in those simple phrases is this inseparable unity within the Godhead so that what God the Father says is equal to what Jesus says, which is equal to what the Spirit says. So when someone says that's not what God says, the Spirit told me this, it can't be true if it denies what the truth already said. Because what the Spirit says is what Jesus said, and what Jesus said is what God the Father says, what God the Father says the Spirit says, because they both want to highlight and glorify Christ. Someone says that God told them something and whatever they say that God has told them is contrary to what the scriptures say. It is not of God. And that frightens me to death. Why? Because God would never say anything that would be contrary to what he has said. And therefore the word of God is a closed revelation. It is a closed revelation because the spirit has led the apostles into notice all the truth. And you have that in the Old and New Testament scriptures. Go ahead, language experts, study the, the text here, look at the word all and tell me what the word all means because you know what all means? All. It means all. It doesn't mean I will lead you into some truth. I will lead you into a portion of it. I will lead you into a truth. No, he will lead you. He will guide you into all the truth. It means that there is nothing else. And that means that God doesn't have anything else to tell us about his son that he has not given us already in the inspired word. There is not something else out there lingering out that maybe I need to figure out and find out. It's a closed canon. Does that mean that it exhausts the mind of God? Absolutely not. But it's exhaustive of all that he wanted to tell us about his son, and that is enough. So the New Testament is historical. The New Testament is doctrinal, and there's a third reality here. The New Testament is prophetic. The New Testament is prophetic. Verse 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. What is to come? The word disclosed is used three times. I've already highlighted it. Disclose in verse 13, disclose in verse 14, disclose in verse 15. It means to show you in detail. To show you in detail. He will show you in detail what is to come. He's going to glorify me because he will take of mine and shall show you in detail. He will show you in detail what is to come. So what was to come from their current perspective? As disciples heard Jesus Christ say these words, what was to come that they would be so confused about that they needed the Spirit to come and guide them in all of that? I'll tell you what it was, the resurrection. Understanding the resurrection. That's why Paul preached about the resurrection so much. It was all about the resurrection. 
the one who would rise from the dead, Jesus Christ. They were confused about the resurrection. They didn't want Jesus to go. And even though he said they would see him again, they didn't fully get it. But they would. Why? Because the Spirit would disclose it to them. Spirit would show them in detail. Oh, how they needed that. They needed that. Why? Because it's the resurrection that is the focus of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection that is our hope, is it not? That's what Paul said to the Corinthians, right? Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Our faith is worthless. That's why I said at the very beginning, the resurrection is the focus. The focus is the resurrection. How do we know that? You say, how do you know it's actually the resurrection? I mean, I heard you say that earlier. Now you're saying that again. How do you know it's the resurrection? He doesn't even use the term resurrection here. I'll tell you how I know that. Look at verses 20 through 22. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world's going to rejoice. You just said, I'm going to go, right? A little while, you'll, you, you're not going to behold me. And a little while again, you'll see me, he says in verse 17. You're going to weep and lament, but the world's going to rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Now, let me give you an example, he says. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because the hour has come. Right? She's about to have birth. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of stress involved. There's a moments of a very difficult time coming. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more. Do you know what the proof of that is? You know how I can tell you women don't remember the anguish of childbirth anymore? They have multiple kids. I've stood there and watched a woman have a baby. And I'm telling you what, I'm thankful I'm a man. The, the, the anguish is gone. It's an amazing thing. No more anguish for the joy that the child has been born into the world. She's just joyful about this little burst of energy that's right there. Jesus says, therefore, you too now have sorrow. You're sad that I'm going. But I'm going to see you again. What's he talking about? The resurrection. Talking about the resurrection, but I'm going to see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Listen, our joy is wrapped up as Christians in the resurrection. That's where our hope lies. The reason that we can say in front of a firing squad, I will not recant, is not because we're strong people, it's because we have hope in the resurrection. It's because we believe that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is our future home, that that we are secure in him, that we are safe in him, and so that when we take our last breath, we have joy. That's why our sweet brother Joe could say, "Don't, don't be sad about me. I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to see Jesus. Listen, beloved, let us revel in the historical, doctrinal, prophetic reality of the resurrection. It's true. It's not just words we read about in a book. It's real. We believe it. Why? Because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in believing, we have life in his name.
Why? Why do we have life in his name? Because he is the truth of the resurrection. So what's this passage saying to us? Trust the scriptures. Trust the scriptures. They're the word of God. Trust them. It's the word of God. Historical, doctrinal, and prophetic. I hope that's encouraged you tonight. I hope that's given you fresh hope in your lungs. We're about there. Jesus is about to go to the cross. We're about to see the resurrection in vivid color. Maybe some time, but we'll we'll get there. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this wonderful truth of your word. Thank you that we have a trusted scripture. That you, by your spirit, the truth was given, brought to remembrance to them that what we have is true. That you have preserved your word, that we can trust it throughout the ages. That in the original manuscripts, as they were written down, there was not one point of error at all. And even the scriptures that we have, the copies that we have, are so trustworthy, Lord, that we know that even with the minor things that some men try to come up with and say it's untrustworthy, we know that's just ridiculous. For you, sovereign God, through the Spirit, would never allow your word to be confused about your Son. So you've given those who truly believe the Spirit that they might understand You illumined their hearts and minds and you inspired these men carried along by the Spirit of God that we might have all that we need to know about Jesus Christ that we might believe. So thank you for causing us to believe. So honor your name in us as we share this truth to others and stand faithfully on it, unwaveringly, that your name would be glorified in us this day and throughout this year and into whatever days we have left. In Christ's name we pray, amen.